one of the most important questions any of us will ever have to answer. And, and, and I'll just tell you whether you've answered this or not, or whether you think you have to answer it or not, you do. One of the most important questions that we will have to answer is who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? And some would prefer the question be asked, who was Jesus? But Jesus is still alive, and he is still reigning, and he is still sitting on his throne. And I know when I say that, I am preaching to the choir, as it were, to hopefully most of our room here who knows who Jesus is and would stand with me on the word of God and all that it says about who Jesus is. Amen. Now, maybe you're here and that isn't you, and I want you to know that's, that's fine for today. <laughs> And it's fine as you explore, but you will have to deal with this question, who is Jesus? And our passage today deals with who Jesus is. And so as we dive into it, I, I want us to consider that for ourselves and for the world. We're going to begin again in verse chapter, Mark chapter 3, verse 30, or 28 rather. And it says this, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children, oh my goodness, I'm doing it again. So I preached this earlier and just kept jumping to the wrong spots over and over again. Um, let me start again. We're going to verse 20. <laughs> and we're going to count on the Holy Spirit to keep me straight today because my mind is, is jumping. So verse 20, chapter 320, it says this, and he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now we're coming into this out of where we've been the last few weeks. We saw last week uh, Jesus call the apostles to himself to love and to follow him, to be with him, and to go out and do ministry. We use that to highlight how all of us, if we are disciples, are also meant to go, <laughs> to be sent out after having been with Jesus and been in relationship with Jesus. What we've seen is, is this very thing. Just before that, there are crowds, and, and they are actually threatening Jesus' life, pressing in on him so much. And we come here, and we find out that the crowd is gathering again in such a way that Jesus can't even eat. And his family hears about this, and, and they've heard about all this other stuff going on with him, the crowds, the controversy, the, the scribes who are angry at him, the leaders of the, of the Jewish uh, religion that want to kill him. And so they come to seize him, for he, they were saying he was out of his mind. Church, his family believed he was a lunatic. Now, this is especially stunning when you come out of Christmas season just a few weeks ago and we looked at Mary and all she believed and knew about Jesus. And you kind of have to wonder where she is in this, but certainly Jesus' younger brothers, they show up and, and they just are convinced that something is wrong here. But they love him. They love him. They don't leave him to his crazy they must rescue him from his crazy. And so they, they come, and the text actually says to seize him. That is the Greek word for arrest him. 
They want to take him, forcibly remove him from the situation he's in, drag him out of his home in Capernaum, which was Peter's house, in the center of his ministry at this time, and they want to bring him back to Nazareth where they can protect him. Have you ever been called crazy for your faith? Is there anybody in your life who thinks you're a lunatic because of what you are willing to go through and commit to in your faith? Church, we are in good company when the world would look at us and think that we've gone too far. You hear it in their words. I've heard it in family members and in friends over the years. Right? It's, it's fine to go that far, but you're just, you're just taking it a little bit too much. There's a coworker who wonders why every time they invite you to, ch- to something on a Sunday, you say, I can't until one. A Sunday morning is committed. It might be. Right? You hear it in the words when they, when they wonder, when family members wonder why you spent the weekend at a men's retreat or you go on a women's retreat. Why? You know, a little bit of religion. I hear this all the time. A little bit of religion is a good thing. A little bit of Jesus. Just, but you don't want to go too far. We are in good company with those who would be considered crazy for the sake of the gospel. The book of Acts, chapter 26. The Apostle Paul is on trial. Verse 24, Acts 26, verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus, who's the ruler, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He thinks Paul isn't making any sense because he's actually taken too much knowledge in. He has too much understanding. Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. The world thinks that too much Jesus is fanatical because they don't understand that too much Jesus is rational and makes sense and everything else is crazy. Kent R. Hughes says, those who know who the Christ is are not crazy. They are supremely sane. R.C. Sproul once wrote, has anyone ever called you a religious fanatic? I heard a few of you say amen to that when I asked earlier. If you answer that question in the negative, if you say no to that question, R.C. Sproul says this, my next question is, why not? Anyone who takes his faith seriously and speaks on behalf of Christ and his kingdom will be accused of fanaticism at some point. Church, they thought Jesus was crazy. And yet, Jesus is and has always been the most sane human that has ever lived. The world will often look at Jesus and they will assume that he was crazy. The world will look at Jesus and think that he was a lunatic. Those who do that will have a 
a mind to the respect of faith and religion, but they won't want to go too far. On the other hand, though, in the rest of the passage we're going to look at, uh, things get far worse for what they say and who they say Jesus is. Going back to Mark chapter 3, and actually reading in the right spot this time, verse 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. See, on the one hand, there are those who would look at Jesus and call him a lunatic, and there, on the other hand, are those who would look at Jesus and call him, what, a liar or worse. A liar or worse. They look at him and say he's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is uh, sort of literally the Lord of Flies or the Lord of the Dung Heap. So there's a dis involved in all of that. There's a disgust. And that book, Lord of the Flies, was actually written out of that name right there. But right after that, they, they expand on that and and they actually say, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, the prince of demons, his name was Baal, Beelzebel. <laughs> the scribes have already decided who Jesus is before they even show up. They've already decided that he is the devil. He is evil incarnate. He is a liar or worse. And church, this is, these are the options left open to the world. Either you see the world sees Jesus as a lunatic, or they see Jesus as the devil. But there's a third option that we discover here as we continue on in our passage. Jesus has something to say about who he is. Jesus testifies to being more than a liar or a lunatic. Verse 23, and I love what Jesus does. He, he doesn't ignore controversy. He doesn't ignore drama. He doesn't let it go. He confronts it head on. He deals with it. He calls to them, verse 23, and he said to them in parables. Now, parables are short little sayings that people would get the point of, except some people would miss the point. But they're simple, and that was their idea. And if you could grasp the simple truth of them, then you could grasp the truth. He called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. What he does here is point out how absurd their claims are. That's what he's doing with these simple statements. He's pointing out how absurd what they've said is. And we'll come to that in just a minute, but let me just say that that is often the goal and the first step any of us will need to take to lead someone or to help someone come closer to Jesus. Very often what we have to do is point out to them how absurd they are, even as they think we're lunatics. Jesus uses 
a couple statements here. Now, Matthew and Mark both record Jesus also using a question in order to help them see that what they've just said makes no sense. And here's what I want you to know. Out of this, we think about this, right? If our job is to help people see how absurd their position is, then we don't have to know everything. All we have to be able to do is point out to them how absurd their position is. I think there's a lot of times we go into conversations, uh, whether with friends or strangers, we want to talk about our faith, but we're not sure if we're going to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You have to know the one who does and stand on his foundation. Here's the truth of, uh, of Christ. When we're trying to talk about who he is and we're trying to make sense of him, we're the ones standing on solid ground. Those who don't know him are the ones standing on shaky ground. And so we can walk into a conversation confidently even when we don't know everything. Even when we don't think we know anything. Because we know him who does. And sometimes all we have to do is point out how absurd this way of thinking is and how just Christ lines up with the world and we know he does because he created it. It's his. And so church, this is what Jesus does. He points out the absurd. He doesn't get into any deep apologetics or deep history lessons about who the devil is and who demons are and their role in history and how they play in this. No, he just points out to them that what they said is stupid. Now, I would urge you to be more polite than I just was when talking to someone. Nobody likes to be called stupid, but they do need to know that what they think about Christ is just wrong. See, they should know because it just makes sense that, that a demon being cast out by the power of demon is not going to lead to a very successful strength war campaign. Right? Jesus is out there. They have seen him cast out demons. We don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of demons have been casted out. He and his disciples have been doing this for days and weeks, maybe months, right? And so they can't they can't say, well, he's not doing it. They have to say he's doing it by the power of something else, and, and they choose Satan in that. But let's be honest. Every married couple who has at one point fought with each other, with, not against each other, and for each other, and then has found themselves in a place where they are fighting with, against each other, knows exactly what Jesus is talking about here. A house cannot stand when it is divided. Every church that has gone through splits and chaos and trouble and heartache knows this as well. God's people should know this really well because Jesus teaches it right here. It's not the point of what he's saying, but it's the obvious truth he's pointing out to these people who are supposed to be super smart and are actually super stupid. <laughs> right? See, it's ridiculous to think that the willful and intelligent strategy of Satan would be to divide his own house. 
And Jesus points this out to them. He goes on, though. He continues to testify. He moves from where they are and what they're thinking to who he is. He makes this amazing declaration. I love this declaration in verse 27. He says this, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus expands on his prayer. He expands and he tells more in order to declare who he is. And let me just say this. The joy of being a modern reader of scripture, and when I say that, what I mean is that the thing I'm about to say is not in the text and nobody should say that it is. But as I read this, I I see Jesus, and I want you to hear this and laugh along with me if you're willing. Forgive me if you hate this. Jesus is the hero pirate king swinging in on a rope to tie up the devil in his own ship and free his captives. I see the word plunder and I just go there, right? But here's the thing. It actually makes some sense. I'm not saying Jesus was a hero pirate king. He was a hero king. But it makes sense because from the time of Adam and Eve, the world has been the devil's. From the time in Adam and Eve, the, the world, people's hearts and minds, those who aren't in line with God, were the playground of Satan. It was his house. But the hero king has arrived. He's come. And without dividing Satan's house, what he's doing is putting an end to Satan's house anyway. He binds the strong man. That's what Jesus says. Nobody, nobody can plunder the house until he's bound the strong man. And then he plunders the goods. He plunders his house. And church, men and women of God, you who have experienced the heartache of Satan's work in this world, we, you and I should be giddy over what we see here. Because what Jesus is saying is that he is not equal to the strong man. He doesn't just sneak up on the strong man. He's stronger and overpowers the strong man, defeats him, and ties him up. And I would ask you this. Who, after tying up the strong man and stealing everything he has, releases that strong man again? See, Jesus bound the strong man, but you know what? That strong man, the devil, is still bound. He's still tied up in his house, unable to do anything. He can spew lies and threats and taunts, but Jesus is declaring his authority and his power over all that the devil has called his. And what began in his ministry with healings and exorcisms will be completed on the cross as Jesus dies that all the captives might, be, might find or might be available to find release. I know we've got people in this room right now who feel captive to sin and darkness, who feel stuck in the brokenness of their lives. 
I know many of us come out of lives where we had felt broken, where we were utter slaves to sin and to our own selfish passions and desires. And what happened is Christ came in and he freed us. And I want you to know if you're sitting here today and you are still captive to anything but Christ, there is freedom available to you because he has bound the strong man and he has plundered the captives. And so Jesus testifies to who he is. He is neither lunatic, nor is he liar or worse. But Jesus isn't the only one who testifies in our passage to who he is today. Moving forward a little bit, we get to verse 28 through 30. Let me read this for us. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. See, Jesus testifies to himself, but so does the Holy Spirit. And I know for a few of you, you now have, as I read that, a burning question about what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, and perhaps... Have I ever committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And I, I want to tell you, we will get to that in just a minute. But before we do, we need to know that it's not just Christ who testifies himself. It's the Holy Spirit who testifies to Christ. And that is why there is a sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5, verses 5 through 12. This is a big passage. I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. Otherwise, you can hear this. But Scripture teaches us, Scripture teaches us, that is the Holy Spirit who testifies to Christ into our hearts and into our lives unto our belief. Again, 1 John 5, 5 through 12, it says this, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Christian, if you are here today and you are a Christian, Christian, you came to faith because the Holy Spirit testified to your heart, soul, and mind, not because a pastor preached a message, an evangelist shared a word, or a disciple loved you. Now, those things are the means by which the Holy Spirit used to take you from his message in your life 
to being saved, to knowing, to being conscious of your salvation. It is the Holy Spirit working in us before we could ever verbally confess with our mouth or believe in our heads and our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he did what he did and he is who he is. We believe because the Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us believe. And then in our words, in our faith, our belief, we affirm that out loud. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That faith is placed into you by the Holy Spirit. He saves you by faith. And so the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus' power and his authority, to his role in salvation, to the work of the cross. He, he testifies to all of the gospel. And so church, as we would consider who Jesus is, we are forced with a question. The world has answers. The world has answers to that question, and they make no sense. There are those in, in the world that would look at Jesus and say, a good moral teacher. They would look at Jesus and say, I like what he teaches, but I, I just don't think he was God. C.S. Lewis addressed this, and maybe the, the, the way he, the, the, the single most impactful or well-known teaching of C.S. Lewis, straight out of this passage, I think, he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. C.S. Lewis says you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Liar lunatic or Lord. And that leads us finally back to the question that I know is burning in a few of your heads and hearts and minds. You're wondering about it and you're worried about it as we got to it. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Somebody said denying he's God. Is that what? Somebody read my notes. I'll just go home now. First, I want to talk about what it's not. First, I want to talk about what it's not. Because there are a lot of lies in this world about what it is. And that those lies have led to a lot of fear and wonder 
and anxiety over someone's salvation. So here's a few things that it's not. Number one, it is not a cursing of the Holy Spirit. It is not in a fit of anger at the Lord shaking your fist at God. I mean, how many of us would have been disqualified if that was the case? Because there was a moment in our lives and pain and frustration and anger where we said, really, God? And yet the Lord has worked. It is not taking the Lord's name in vain. It is not saying Jesus, God, Father, Holy Spirit in some way that is a curse word or a nonsense word. Now, I will just tell you, yes, sin, not unforgivable. Some of us probably do need to work on cleaning up our language in that way a little bit. God, friends, God is holy. Nor is it adultery or sexual perversion. Really good for King David that his adultery was forgivable. It is not murder, genocide, or hatred. Again, sin. Not good. You don't want to be there, but forgiveness is available. And friends, we live in a very Catholic community, so let me say very clearly, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Sad, yes. For those who have lived a life for Christ and in a moment of hopelessness, gave it all up. Sad, painful, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, still forgivable. Mark actually tells us exactly what it is. Verse 30. It says, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. What they're doing is they're taking the beautiful, wonderful, power, awesome, magnificent work of Christ in redeeming humanity, and they're attributing it to Satan. They're attributing it to him, and in doing so, what they're doing is denying Jesus. They are ascribing this wonderful thing to the devil, and they're denying Jesus. They are actively, willfully, denying Christ. And for this, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because they don't want it. It's because they don't want it. Hear this. This is not a one-off verbal announcement, dismissal of Jesus. I mean, how many of us, somebody came to, somebody preached a message, and we said, no, I'm not going to do that. And we might have done that for years before we finally came in willfully into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. This is not a one-off willful moment. What this is, they're a one-time denial. No, this is a willful, right? They know what they're doing. Active choice that is being made to continually, ongoing, have a pattern of denial in which they never do turn to Christ. For some of us, we wonder, have I committed this? Have I committed this? There's two really great ways to know that you've never committed this. Number one, the first way to know you've never committed the unforgivable sin is that you are worried about maybe having somehow committed it. 
Because if you care about salvation and you care about Christ and you care about your eternal destiny and you care about spiritual things, then you've not committed the sin. And some of us struggle at times with confidence in our salvation because we have committed to Christ, we've said yes to him, and then we found ourselves either because of an addiction or some other thing in our life uh, falling away yet again or falling back into something evil and awful. And so we think and we wonder, am I even saved? And so we wonder, have I committed this sin because I am turning away from God yet again and yet again. And and at what point is he going to turn away from me? Do you know that your salvation is not rooted in your perfect performance? Your salvation is rooted in Christ's perfect sacrifice. Which means if you have been in Christ, you are still in Christ. Paraphrasing a great preacher named Bodhi Bakum, he once said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. He goes on to say, what pride must someone have to say, I could lose my salvation, but I didn't. You can't lose it because it's not yours. It's God's, and he is keeping it for you. We read Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 earlier. Hear this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, let me read that again. Who, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What that means is that when we were saved, Christ took that salvation and he didn't put it in your pocket. He put it in the Holy Spirit's pocket. And the Holy Spirit is in heaven, of course, also living in us. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. Somebody way smarter than me once said, for you to lose your salvation, the Holy Spirit would have to stop being God. And that would mean that God would no longer be God. All right, so the first way that you know that you haven't committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply this, your concern that you might have. Here's the second way, and I, this one's a lot shorter. You love God, you've confessed your faith in him, and you have received the Holy Spirit, Spirit, period. You know you haven't committed this sin. If one, you're concerned about it, and two, you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, and you have received the Holy Spirit and salvation and the transformation of your life into eternity. Because God is still God, and he does not go back on his word Sinclair Ferguson wrote, here's the one certain sign that a man is in danger of committing the sin. A stubborn resistance to Jesus, which eventually expresses itself and treating him as the ultimate evil in our lives. Isn't that exactly what the the scribes did here in this passage, right? He's not just a lunatic, he is the devil. 
And this is the same thing the world does around us. They would look at Jesus and say, if I would follow Jesus, I would have to change my life. And I like my life. It's the same thing the world says when they see the word of God as a restrictor rather than a freer. So I don't want to follow Christ because he will restrict my fun. If you see his teaching and the outflow of it as a barrier to your happiness, then you are dangerously close, friends. And if you don't care about your sin, you don't care about your holiness, you are content living the life that you live in willful and stubborn disobedience to the, in the full knowledge of what you're supposed to do. If you are aware of the transformation that is possible for you but never seek it, if you are aware of the forgiveness available to you, but never turn to it, if you are aware of God's invitation into your holiness, but never take hold of it, then watch out. The thief comes in the night when you least expect, and in that moment, it will be too late. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the ongoing commitment to the idea that Jesus is not who he claims to be. And of course, if you won't embrace Jesus, there is no forgiveness. And this is a heavy warning, but right alongside it comes a beautiful promise. Verse 28, Jesus says, truly, truly is the word amen. He's saying he's already agreeing with himself as he says it. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Aside from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that you could do in your life that cannot be forgiven. There is nothing that you have ever done. There's nothing you're doing right now and there's nothing you will do that can't be forgiven. Jesus says, all sins and whatever blasphemies. There is forgiveness. For all who would turn to Christ, all who would believe in his name, all who would trust in his salvation, there is forgiveness for them and for you today. I don't know where you are on your road to Jesus, but unless you've crossed into that road where you are unwilling to follow him, you're not too far. And I'd urge you, if that's you today, to consider who Jesus is. Is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he Lord? And if you've made that choice at some point in your past, you've decided that he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, but is in fact Lord, then let us continue to live our lives for him and in him by his strength, by his power, by the Holy Spirit who works in us, and let us be his people together, amen? God, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your glory, Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen us today. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we would be gathered and as we would come to the Lord's Supper and even as we would continue our time of worship and then eventually go from this place, Lord, that you would meet with us and be with us, Lord, that you would call us, that you would send us, Lord. And I do pray if there's anyone in this room right now who has never made the decision to follow you, that their spirit would speak into them that today, right now, is that day. And I pray, God, that you would save one who is lost today. 
God, help us to love you and to praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.